electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good evening, I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight the Fed readies one of the most important rate calls ever. Could it cause more pain for the consumer or the banks or both? We'll hear from Wall Street legend Steve Ratner. Will the TikTok clock strike midnight? How the upcoming hearings to ban the app could ultimately play out. And the AI arms race heating up. Google launching its new chatbot. Will it become our new robot overlord? And the critical courtroom showdown between Dominion Voting Systems and Fox has huge implications for both content and the media. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, good evening here on the East. Good afternoon out West. I am Brian Sullivan, a jam-packed hour ahead. First up tonight, drama around Jay Powell and the Fed meeting tomorrow. Now, normally these meetings are pretty well set. Everybody's got kind of a clear expectation of what is going to happen, right? Maybe not this time. This meeting comes on the heels of the collapse of three big banks in America, Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature. And coming into today, nearly 500 billion dollars in total investor value in the banks wiped out in just over a week. Some of that was recouped today, with nearly all the bank stocks popping just a bit. Regional banks were up as well, led by the bank that everybody is watching right now, and that is First Republic. It actually went up today after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the government could backstop more deposits if needed. Just don't call it a bailout, right? But because this whipsaw just can't end, First Republic shares are now down after hours on a new report out of the Wall Street Journal says that the bank has hired the financial advisory firm Lazard to help it review strategic options. Now, whatever you call this mess, what is happening with the banks could impact what the Fed does. Do they raise borrowing costs again to try to slow the economy and bring still hot inflation down or does the Fed do nothing and pause and wait and see what has been happening with the banks and how it might impact the economy? We don't know, but this guy probably does. Let's bring in Wall Street Journal reporter Nick Timoros. Nick, good to have you back on. There's your question, or is it door number three? <laughs> well, Brian, it's funny. You know, three weeks ago, everybody was asking, uh, when is all of this monetary policy tightening? going to take a pound of flesh out of the economy. And now, three weeks later, we finally have some answer here. Uh, you're seeing these, these bank challenges. And, and so I think the question now for the Fed is, how much additional tightening and financial conditions are they going to get? How much do they expect to get from what we're seeing in the banking sector on top of everything else that's happened uh, with interest rate increases over the past year? That's really the big question here is, you know, you, you hit that glass ketchup bottle, nothing comes out, and then you keep hitting it. And finally, uh, stuff is coming out of the bottle now, and it's it's a glass bottle. You can't squeeze it. You can't control it too finely. 
So that's the question here. Appropriate with ketchup, I guess, because you, you wonder if there's going to be blood on the tracks of the economy. I mean, you've had people like Senator Elizabeth Warren say you're going to destroy the economy, cost millions of jobs if you continue on this rate hike cycle. And now we've got all this bank stuff that ultimately, Nick, we don't know how this will play out. Do you think that in that boardroom today and tomorrow, Jay Powell and company are sitting around going, you know what? All this bank stuff may be kind of its own tightening in a way by constricting credit. Let's pause. Well, you, you certainly hear former policymakers uh, making arguments to pause. You hear arguments from former policymakers on both sides, right? I think the case for pausing here uh, is you don't really know how much of an effect this is going to have. And it's easier to fix a mistake in this case of not tightening enough. You'll have another meeting in six weeks. If it turns out this banking crisis wasn't a big worry, then you can continue raising rates. If you do too much here, the Fed really doesn't want to be in a position where people are asking about rate cuts when inflation's this high. And then the argument you hear from a lot of people, including people who used to work at the Fed, for going is you've still got a hot economy, you've still got an inflation problem, and there is this question of inertia. If you stop now, people aren't really going to expect that you're going to resume increases later. They'll price in cuts, they'll ease financial conditions, and you really don't want to have a market melt up here yeah. that uh, allows hot inflation to, to continue to but, run. But knowing Jay Powell and others on the Fed, as you do, Nick, I'm sure... Are they looking at this bank stuff and thinking this is going to damage parts of the consumer economy down the road? I don't see how it doesn't. I mean, that's the huge question, Brian. And I think we'll have a much clearer idea this time tomorrow. It's, it's you know, you think a little bit about uh, where Powell was in December 2018. There was not really a close call before that meeting to raise interest rates. But the question was, how could they pull off the dovish hike? And they didn't really pull it off. They weren't as dovish as the market wanted them to be. And you saw that huge upchuck after the meeting. Uh, so, you know, I, I've been thinking a little bit about that situation today, but it's not really clear, you know, wh what that tells you to do. Inflation wasn't a big problem in December of 2018 when they hiked to just below two and a half percent. But, you know, you have some yeah. of the same risk management considerations. I would say so. I think that's very understated, but well said. Nick Timoros, we'll let you get back on the Fed beat. Look forward to reading tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right, you're welcome. Let's stay on this, right? And really ask two more key questions. One, could another interest rate hike do more harm than good to the macro economy? And two, has the Fed already lost control and maybe lost a little respect of the marketplace? To answer these questions, bring in Willett Advisors Chairman and CEO Steve Ratner, of course, Counselor to the Treasury Secretary, leading the Obama administration's 2009 auto bailout, among other things, and a long career on Wall Street. Steve, welcome. Good to have you on, uh, I would say, in the daylight hours, but it's nighttime rather than morning. Joe, has the Fed lost control? I think the Fed has had a tough, a tough uh, several months, and I'm a great, I'm a huge admirer of the Fed. I used to have Nick Speed way back in the 70s. I covered Volcker's famous press conference. I think it is a great institution, but it's had a very tough run, even really the last couple of years, starting with the transitory inflation call and then all the way through this period. But right now, look, it's facing really tough choices. And the, you're dealing with what you know, people might call the known unknowns. We don't know. We know what's unknown, but we don't know what the unknowns mean. And so it's a, it's a tough spot for them. 
Yeah, it was kind of my point. So with that in mind and all the unknown unknowns, WWSRD, what would Steve Ratner do if you're pal? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to uh, I'm not I'm going to go move away from ketchup and move on to Goldilocks. And so I would take door number three, not too hot, not too cold. I think if the Fed, I think 50 basis points is very hard to argue for at this moment for all the reasons you guys were just talking about which is you do have an economy that probably for whom for which probably what's been going on with the banks is deflationary or anti-growth or whatever you want to call it. So to go to 50 basis points seems pretty uh, harsh. But on the other hand, if the Fed does nothing, I think a couple problems. First, I think it potentially sends a signal to the market that the Fed is more worried about the economy than perhaps other people are at this moment, and therefore the market may well panic. And secondly, I think it just adds to this whole narrative around the Fed of too much stop-start kind of mentality. And so they do nothing now, then they come back and have to raise rates because it's not obvious that there's been any real change in the inflationary outlook. Wages are still going up too fast. Prices are still going up too fast. And the Fed, uh, all things being equal, has to continue to do its job. And I think you nailed it on the other side. If they don't raise rates, if they pause because they're just going to say, want to wait and see, Do you also think they could be sending sort of a a hidden message to some people that maybe the banking issues were bigger than we thought? That's exactly the question. And that's the risk they run and do it. That's one of the risks they run in doing nothing. It's the biggest risk uh, that they run in doing nothing. And so I would certainly advocate. And if you look at where the futures market is at the moment, uh, at last I looked, it was about two thirds expecting 25 basis points. And I think that is the right policy choice, uh, right policy choice. And it will also keep the market reasonably happy, reasonably calm that we're not letting inflation uh, run away, nor are we panicking about the banking crisis. You are in a previous, well, not only a reporter in a previous life and a banker and a TV guy, but you were also like the car czar, Steve. So I'm going to ask you this. Number one is what we're seeing right now with these backstops. Is it, quote, a bailout, politically charged word, and two, The Treasury Secretary today saying basically we might look at options to guarantee all deposits. I don't think the FDIC has that much money. So would that be tapping the taxpayer? Look, first of all, as uh, my old boss and friend Tim Geithner used to say, this is not a time for Old Testament justice, meaning this is not a time to figure out who the villains are and punish them. This is a time to make sure that we don't have contagion, that this doesn't spread uh, that the economy keeps moving and the banking system keeps moving as best it can. I would not, this is not a classic bailout in the sense that shareholders are losing all their money, bondholders are losing all their money, executives are losing their jobs, the value of their stock is going to zero. Yes, big deposits are being protected, but unfortunately, I think that is the price we have to pay to keep this financial system intact and prevent this kind of contagion from, from going on. What, I mean, American public is damn sick and tired, pardon my French, I think that's French, of the of banks causing problems. I mean, I saw a list of Credit Suisse's fines. Every year they're fined like $500 million and now they're basically gone and, and part of UBS. I mean, what, at what point does the American public just, just have any trust in banks? It just seems like every 15 to 10 to 15 years, we have some major or mini crisis. Uh, that's fair, and it, and that's fair, and we need in the fullness of time to address the issues and try to come up with things. A couple of points. Number one, Credit Suisse was arguably one of the worst-run banks in the world. Uh, not just fines, but if you could find a place to lose money, Credit Suisse would find it. 
And so that, that's, that's an important point to make. Number two, I think this is very different than the 2008 crisis. The 2008 crisis was systemic. It was bad behavior by a lot of banks, way too much risk taking. You've reported on this yourself, crazy financial structures, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. This time around, we're dealing with, I think, I think a small number of banks that absolutely made some mistakes, uh, classic banking mistakes. But we're talking about, at the moment, three, four, five, six banks that may have these issues. You're not going to, the big banks are healthier, sounder, better managed, uh, more prudent yeah. than in almost any time in my career. I, I, you know, Credit Suisse, a lot of people got rich, to your point, as the bank just imploded pretty much every year. Heck, I'll lose money for free. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, a Bloomberg report out that they some of the loan officers or loans were made to in, officials and executives and whatever, a couple hundred million dollars in the months before the ultimate implosion. Would you expect, and I'm going to wildly speculate here, would you expect there could be criminal charges at SVB? Uh, that is wild speculation, unfortunately, and I, I'm not equipped to make it. I think we need a full investigation. We need to find out everything that went on and why it went on. But I, but I, don't, I think the problems of SVB were more endemic than simply uh, some loans that shouldn't have been made or this or that. It was, the, you know, as you've reported, the classic mistake of um, short-term obligations, long-term assets, mismatch of interest rates, all this kind of stuff. It, uh, 93% of their deposits uninsured, just a lot of really classic basic banking mistakes on top of what may turn out to be malfeasance. Yeah. We don't know yet. And we do need a full investigation. The public's entitled to it. We're all entitled to that. I, I think, listen, I think we got to go back and quote that great philosopher, Wimpy. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. <laughs> And it just never came. Steve, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. My, my pleasure, Brian. All Thanks right. so much. All right. Thank you. All right, folks, we are just getting started on a busy hour up next. The courtroom face-off between Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems today. Could News Corp and Fox be chained for years? Plus, a make-or-break hearing over TikTok's fate. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu with us. Could TikTok just be gone one day soon? We'll hit it next. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Kind of a neat new animation and sound with 1974. Hello, everybody. All right, welcome back. It is time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some stuff you'll be probably talking about in the morning. 
First up, GameStop. Booming right now. The stock is up 48% after hours. They posted their first quarterly profit in two years. Look at that. Like I said, big news there. But kind of a bad news is good news type story. GameStop slashed inventory, also cut costs, plan even more costs this year, but did turn a profit. Sadly, the stock's up big, but it was a $47 stock just over a year ago. All right. Also in the news, that is Nike. Nike stock down a little bit after reporting their earnings, but there were some positives. Inventory, it continues to drop. That's a good thing. But inventory, still too high overall. One reason? Chinese consumers aren't buying as much as they used to. Of course, they all are just coming out of nearly three years of crushing lockdowns, so give them time. And finally, the Fox versus Dominion showdown having its latest standoff in a Delaware court today. And the judge overseeing the case just announced that hearings will extend into a second day. Both sides are asking the judge to issue a summary judgment on the case and thus avoid a jury. Dominion Voter Systems is arguing they were defamed by Fox News in their coverage of the 2020 election. Claims of voter fraud related to the company's voting machines. This could be a make-or-break lawsuit in many ways, with far-reaching implications for both content and news organizations across the country, based specifically on what you can and cannot say. For more on this big story, Semaphore co-founder Ben Smith joining us now. Ben, does this case, however it come out, have implications for me, you, and the media landscape writ large? Well, I'm glad you're thinking of us first, Brian. Of course. That's, oh, sorry, that's me, me. It's all about me. And, uh, and, and congrats on the show. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I think, I mean, this is a, a huge sort of precedent-setting lawsuit. And that's because, you know, Dominion has has really revealed pretty shocking things about the inner workings of Fox. I mean, you've seen a lot of, through the years, journalists saying embarrassing things to each other in email that leak out. And a lot of this stuff is really different. You know, they, they, a lot of people from executives to the rank and file to the big name hosts knew that some of these crazy claims that people around Donald Trump were making about voting machines were just absolutely false. And then from the other side, they were panicked that if they went too hard against them, they would lose viewers and lose ratings. And you just saw that tension play out in real time. And so Dominion has a very strong case. I would say, though, the other side of this here is that is that, you know, is what all of these embarrassing facts we are taking from the plaintiff's motions, a motion I think they're very unlikely to win. And, you know, and. and Yeah, we don't know, Ben, we do not know, to be fair, we do not know a lot on the News Corp side. Right. It's mostly at Fox News. We, We have Rupert Murdoch at various times, you know, saying that it's saying, saying that this stuff is false. But, you know, a defamation case, you really, the, what Fox is saying is you need to prove that a specific person knew it was false. You can't just say, a, you know, a company in a broad sense knew it was false and then said it. And so, and, and you know, Dominion is asking for $1.6 billion. And I think, you know, there is a case to be made that if, as crazy as some of this stuff was, as defamatory as it was, a $1.6 billion verdict against a, new, yeah. uh, against a publisher because should be worrying for other journalists. And Dominion voting, for correct me if I'm wrong, but Dominion voting is not a very big company. I mean, this this would be like if you make 50 grand a year and you have a lawsuit for 150 million. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a huge, a huge price tag. And it does, you know, it would be a big, you know, if they get a verdict like that, there'd be a lot of plaintiff's lawyers out there saying, wow, There's a lot of money to be made in suing news organizations. And honestly, that does make me nervous.
Yeah. You know, is the likely outcome of this case, let's assume that Dominion wins. I don't want to assume, but let's, let's say Dominion wins the case. Some people say, well, if they go for the $1.6 billion, News Corp itself, as big as it is in trouble, we don't know about the you know, reinsurance or insurance they may have. I'm sure they have that on this kind of a thing. Is a likely outcome, if, if Dominion were to win, that a judge just severely reduces that, and it's almost like a, a nominal fine against News Corp. That's also a possible outcome here. Yeah, you know, I think until recently, a lot of us assumed they were going to settle to avoid getting like embarrassing emails from Rupert Murdoch into the public domain. Those things are now out there. And so it looks like it's going to go to a jury. It is also true that huge, you know, huge price tags on defamation cases do typically get reduced on appeal. And so I think this could, we, you know, we could see a huge headline, a huge price tag and something that over, you know, over a period probably of years. And then if, new, ben, quickly, if News Corp, I'm sorry to cut you off. They're like rap, rap. And my, if News Corp wins, then what? Um, I mean, if News Corp wins, the the journalist's ability to basically say false stuff, to put on people say, saying false stuff, is is widened. And then, honestly, though, I mean, the First Amendment does gives a lot of protection to honest mistakes from journalists, um, and I think that would that would widen it. I mean, you know, but the sad fact here is that ultimately Fox or anybody is you know is can go on the air and say a lot of things that are false about politics as long as they don't go defaming specific companies and they and they, this is you know they stepped on a on, on a landmine here yeah. but they can you know, they can spend most of their days saying crazy stuff anyway if they want well let's be hold on i have friends there let's be fair also ben there's a lot of people that have been really wrong about a lot of things over the last number of years i think we agree absolutely that. absolutely on both all sides. of it protected by the first amendment is a lot of it protected it's a it's a the constitution Kind of works sometimes. Ben Smith, semaphore, always a must read. Thank you. All right, still ahead, the stunning surprise in real estate. We're going to give you a little sully side up on home sales next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Time now for a Tuesday RBI. And today, let's get random but interesting about real estate because we've got some good news and some not so good news for you, America. First up, the sully side up, positive side of the home sales story. Home sales boomed month over month. The National Association of Realtors says February sales surged 14.5%. That is the most since the peak COVID panic buying back in July of 2020. All four regions of America they track saw sales gains. Good news. But as you know, our loyal and intelligent viewers, one month doth not a trend to make. And the longer term data was not so good. Year over year, not only did all four regions of the country post double digit sales declines, but prices came down as well. With the median home price across this great land now at $363,000, that is down. From nearly 414,000 bucks just nine months ago, that 
a 12% haircut. And that is not only one of the biggest drops ever, but is one of the only drops ever since the financial crisis slammed housing. Bottom line, the super short-term trend in housing is a little hopeful. And let's hope the longer-term trend turns around as well. Random, but hopefully interesting on real estate. Oh, by the way, real estate, also the name of an amazing indie band from New Jersey. Check them out. Had to hear is a great song. All right, let's stay on the real estate story. Housing, not the band. As prices did fall across America. Joining us now for more on what is really going on with the housing market is Brown Harris Stevens CEO, Bess Friedman. Bess, you're smiling. That's great. Sully side up. We had good month over month numbers. Year over year, not so good. How are you looking at it? Yeah, I mean, I like the sully side up. That's a great way to start the spring market. So thank you for that, Brian. Um, Yeah, I think one month uh, doesn't mean that we're in a safe place. And remember, you know, we had a historic run up in the pandemic. Uh, After that, in 2021, uh, everybody was out there buying and spending. It was the year of FOMO, as you know. Uh, It was a big party and uh, rates were low. And now uh, what we're seeing is sort of a bit of reckoning. And rates have gone up. We have inflation. We have the war. We have all these things going on. And I think that has slowed things down, which makes sense. And, um, you know, the rates couldn't be that low forever. They had to go up. And that's impacting everybody. And so um, we're seeing that in housing as well. Unless you're a cash buyer. And by the way, there are shocking numbers of cash. I have no idea how these people have all this money, but but they do. Outside of them. I don't think, Bess, and correct me if I'm wrong, anybody buys a house, at least I didn't, on the price of the home. I I sort of looked at the rates and my down payment and the home and said I can afford this much every month. And then my guess is pretty much everybody maxes out what they're able to afford on a monthly basis. So when do we get sort of that equilibrium where prices come down enough where that monthly payment is the same as it was with a 3% mortgage? I mean, we saw a little bit, Brian, where prices have started to come down a little bit. But what we're really challenged with in so many places like the Hudson Valley and Rhinebeck and you mentioned New Jersey, another place that's challenged um, uh, Palm Beach. These places, um, you know, they don't have enough inventory, you know, and the demand is really high and it's inflation, you know, the imbalance of supply and demand. And so we're seeing that in a lot of areas. And so that hasn't shaken out yet. And in other places like New York City, we have good supply and decent demand. And so the market is more fluid. Um, but this is going to take a little bit of time to see how yeah. everything pans out. Yeah, with, let's throw that map back up. The Northeast got walloped year over year. I think it was down 22.6%. Palm Beach, a bit of a surprise, best given that everybody was moving there. It's like, you know, got to make me an old-fashioned and fire up the King Air, fly somewhere else. Um, on a serious it's note. Wall Street, it's Wall Street South, they call it. I was just there two weeks ago, and everybody wants a piece of Palm Beach, and there's something like 77 homes on the market there, and so many businesses have moved there, and it's part of that is due to taxes. You know, Obviously, in New York City, we have that issue, and people go there. It's like a safe haven, and so that's a whole separate issue, but I wish we could just talk yeah. about the slowly side up. That's so much more positive. Well, by, by the way, by the way, random but interesting, I rented a house, an Airbnb in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, over the bridge, as they say. The guy that lived next door to the house lived next door to where I live now in New Jersey as a kid. You can't make this stuff up. No way. True story, 100%. 100%. Anyway, that said, that said, on a serious note, all these 
community banks, these, these mid, small and mid-sized regional banks, a lot of them do do mortgage lending. A lot, you know, not everybody lives in, thankfully, New York, New Jersey, or Palm Beach. Is this going to have a knock-on effect? Is it going to be harder for working-class people, hard-working people, to get a mortgage now? No, I mean, I hope not. I Let's think hope. that. I, I mean, I listen. I I don't think so. I think what you're you know you're referring to what happened with the the banking crisis, and I hope that that has been contained. Uh, and you know, I think that we we are in a place where people are still able to get mortgages. Those small banks are still in operation. I don't think we're in that place. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't macro forecast. But it looks like we're out of the mud in that regard. And I think that, you know, people are out there buying homes. We're seeing this, you know, middle class people are buying homes. It's really a safe place in this environment. It offers stability. There's appreciation. It's for consumption. You can't live in your stock portfolio. But your home is a place, it's sacred space. It's an emotional commodity. And people believe in the home buying process now more than ever. So I don't think yeah. what you mentioned about the banks, I mean, look, could we have some banks go under? We saw that, that could happen. But I think um, I think people are going to continue to buy and I think they can still get mortgages and we're in a good spot. We're going to get you back on in a month, Bess, because we got to see if that one month trend, 14.5% pop continues or if it was a, a one hit, one, the Dexys Midnight Runners I know of that real, song too. Of real estate I know that data. Song. There we. Who doesn't? You been to a wedding? I mean, well, come Best on, we're Gen X. That's, That's why. All right, fair enough. Still ahead. Okay. Speaking of songs, it may be 11 o'clock TikTok for TikTok. What happens if the super popular app actually strikes midnight? That's next. Welcome back to Last Call. Is it time's up for TikTok? A high-stakes congressional hearing gets underway on Thursday, which could help determine the app's future. TikTok's CEO is set to testify. But we were wondering, what exactly would a ban of TikTok look like in the U.S. if it moved forward? How exactly would it be enforced? Joining us now to break it down is CBC's Steve Kovacs. So, Steve, it, let's say TikTok, we don't know what will happen. Let's say TikTok is effectively banned. Like, what happens? Is, like, tomorrow we wake up and the app is wiped off our phone? Well, that can't happen, Brian. That's the last thing they can do. They can't remove the app from your phone. But what they can do is compel Apple and Google to remove them from the Apple, the app stores for Android and iPhone. So that's one way they can go about it. But there's a problem with that too, Brian, because there are ways around it. You can, you can still use it on your phone. You can still use it on the web, tiktok.com. And there are also methods to get around any kind of app store blockages. For example, you can get a VPN app, which lets you basically trick the network into thinking uh, your phone is actually in France or a country where TikTok is not banned. And then you just download it from the app store there. And I guarantee you, Brian, some entrepreneurial teenager is going to figure out how to do that. So that's what's going to happen. Basically, if this is banned, we're going to see VPNs at the top of the app store the next day. Exactly. And it's not a perfect solution. There's another thing that can happen, though. Let's call it the nuclear option, Brian. If they want to go even further, they can tell your Internet service provider to block TikTok. Now, that would really wipe out any access to the service whatsoever, whether it be on the Web, through a VPN, whatever, what have you. So what they but that would likely require an act of Congress to compel yeah. Verizon and all those Internet carriers yeah. to just block TikTok for, straight out. If you go to China right now, for example, they do that.
that. Type in Facebook.com into a web browser and see how lucky you get. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then just look over your shoulder if you're right, in China. Exactly. Steve Kovac, we had questions. You had answers. Thank you very much. You got it. Well, a TikTok ban, if, if there is one, would have an incredible impact on screen time. According to TikTok, they have more than 150 million daily users just here in America. That is basically half the nation, excluding really little kids. TikTok also has over 7,000 employees based in the U.S. TikTok CEO speaking out on the platform earlier today ahead of that testimony. Some politicians have started talking about banning TikTok. Now, this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. I'll be testifying before Congress later this week to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app and deliver on our mission to inspire creativity and to bring joy. But is it too little, too late for TikTok? Joining us now is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Governor, uh, thanks for joining us. If there was a vote tomorrow, ban it, don't ban it, what would you vote? Well, look, I was the first governor, one of the first governors in the country to ban it from government devices because it clearly does represent a risk in terms of those direct access points. But this idea, uh, as I think Steve did a very good job, the practicality of banning it uh, across 150 million users in America. The the problem with all of this is is that the administration has yet to explain to the average American. I know what it means to connect it to a government device, but to the average American, to Jen Smith, why does she have to get rid of TikTok and what risks does it pose? The administration has not fully explained that to people. So to take such drastic action with so little information and transparency around the issue for the average American, considering it affects half of America, um, is, is pretty drastic action. And as Steve pointed out, almost practically imp- imp- impractical, right? Impossible to actually do. So I think there has to be better transparency, better communication on the risks here because there are risks. But what does it mean to the average citizens? That's very different than what it means to uh, having it on a government device and the access points. And the last, well, if I could, I Brian, Governor. it's not just TikTok. It's not just TikTok. There's all these other apps. We, we've banned certain Alibaba apps. We've been banned certain apps from other uh, other uh, Chinese-driven and Chinese uh, government-controlled entities. So if it's not going to be TikTok today, it's the next thing tomorrow. So once you start down this path, it's not like we're just going to solve it by banning it off well, private what we, Okay, so what we've been led to believe is that TikTok is, and by the way, we know our phone is basically a video and recording device for all of our movements all That's the time, right. everywhere. Okay, I get that. I'm not that worried if Apple or United Airlines knows where I am. The risk here is that this is more the Chinese government is literally not only keeping track of what we're doing, but the threat that because they have these algorithms and they can make videos popular, they can spread mis and disinformation, outright lies, total BS, dangerous political stuff with no problem by pushing the stuff they want to push on the American people. With no firewall, no blockade, no nothing. Well, look, I'm, I'm, don't misunderstand. I'm not going to defend the Chinese government, but are you saying that there's not massive misinfor- misinformation around political issues uh, floating on, on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and everywhere else? I mean, look, that's the nature of the new world of communication. Everyone has an access point, whether it's true, false, misinformation or, or otherwise. Except and that's I, a can't use that Twitter, I can't use Twitter. I've been to Ch- China a couple times. I'm not using Twitter there. I'm not, I can't post something critical of the Chinese government. I, it's a one-way street. Yeah, so we, I so, think. So, we're, so, we should be, so we should do the same thing by being like China and banning all no, of this stuff? No, how about force them Look, to I'm invest a free the guy. servers? A- so am I, in the United States, right? We've done it. I think I remember yeah. years ago, there was like a Unical case 
when it was owned by Chevron about submarine fuel. It was a national security issue. And there was, there's, there's times with CFIUS and these other agencies where you can say, you can operate here, TikTok. Just move all your servers to Phoenix. Yeah. So, look, you can have a third-party auditing, and I think that's great. I think Oracle is getting involved. I'm not defending TikTok. Do, do not misunderstand. I'm, I'm kind of pushing back on the administration for saying we're, we're going to ban it from 150 million private devices, and we're really not going to explain to you why that is. And, the, again, I go back to this is just the first one. So once you ban TikTok, you better get ready for another dozen that you got to ban tomorrow and probably another hundred you have to ban next year. It's, it's not going to stop. So, and then who makes that decision? Who is what, what? What app is better or worse than than others? For government devices, it's very clear. It is not safe. Yeah. You shouldn't be putting it on. You're giving them access to very confidential and potentially secret information. But again, for Jen Smith um, in in St. Louis, Missouri, explaining to her why she can't do a, a dance video on TikTok, you better be super clear about it and understand that you're starting down a path that really doesn't have an end. Yeah, or in Concord, New Hampshire, for example. Uh, Governor, I, I yeah. want to get your thoughts on the war in Ukraine. You recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post where you called out some of your fellow Republican leaders, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, for his comments calling the situation a, quote, territorial dispute. Uh, Governor, we saw Chinese President Xi Jinping meeting with Vladimir Putin this week. Your reaction to those developments and where this support for Ukraine goes in a year, five years. Look, America has to have resolve. We are the world leaders. We have to act like it. There's a responsibility to that. And that means supporting our allies. That means showing our, our allies and, and, and coalition builders, if you will, that we will be there with them through the good times and the bad, through the tough times, that we have the resolve to make investments, to push against our enemies. And it tells our enemies um, that, we, that, again, if something were to escalate in Taiwan, it sends a very clear message to China that we're not just going to dip our toe in. We're going to be clear and concise about that responsibility. America leads and creates peace in this world through strength. And just yeah. to be timid about it, to talk, to, to couch words and call things territorial disputes and all, this is not a territorial dispute. This is a sovereign nation, for goodness sakes. And, and there was one side that walked into a sovereign nation and has killed and murdered uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of people. So not hundreds, but tens of thousands of people at least. So you, we are going to support that. And it doesn't mean a blank check. It doesn't mean having to put troops on the ground ourselves. Um, it just means supporting those that are defending freedom. That's what this country was founded on. That's what our allies want to see. And that's what our enemies fear the most, that type of American well, resolve. I, I think the, the pushback, but by the way, we all want Putin to lose. Someone needs to take care of Putin sooner than later, get his people out of there. He's sending them to slaughter. Ukrainians are being slaughtered. It's horrific all around. I think the fear, as some of the foreign policy stuff I've read, is that does this leave us too weakened monetarily, uh, ammunition, whatever it might be, if there is something that happens with China and Taiwan? Monetarily. So, we're, so people say 50 billion. 50 billion is less than 10% of what we spend in one year on our military, right? So if you're going to tell me that for 50 billion, we can crush Russia's tin can army, set, reestablish ourselves as a world leader, send the right message to China, show our resolve uh, and give confidence to all of our allies. Frankly, that's a deal. Right. It really is. So let's understand what we're getting for that kind of, of money and, and the allies we're building and the coalition support we're giving yeah. to all of Eastern Europe, which is going to need that. Because b believe me, if he walks through Ukraine, if Putin walks through Ukraine, he's going to come after NATO allies next. And when he does that, now we're really talking about potential troops on the ground and nobody wants to see that. You, but when you go after NATO allies, which he clearly will. You're the governor of New Hampshire. I, you, you sound to me 
pretty presidential. Are you running for president? <laughs> Do you want me to run? Is that what you want, Brian? <laughs> no, look, I don't know. Ask the look, people wait, of Portsmouth. Look, I, 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 lovely city, by the way. <laughs> I, it's a lovely city. Look, I, 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 talk with, I, I try to talk with clarity. I'm a four-term governor. I try to lead with results and just kind of tell it like it is and, and where we think it is. And our model in New Hampshire works really well. Folks are very excited about it. Maybe it leads to a presidential run. But more importantly, for Republicans, we need to get more independence with us. We need to get the next generation of Republicans back on the team, these disenfranchised Republicans. That's what I spent a lot of my time doing, okay. trying to rebuild the party from a more positive aspect. And in doing so, a lot of people have encouraged me to run. So we'll see what happens. I, I think that was like a romantic comedy. So you're saying there's a chance. It's not a no. <laughs> there you go. Governor Chris it's Sununu. Not a no. Thank you very much. All right, now let's lighten it up a bit, shall we? And head to Quicker Than the Ticker. All the news that matter in the world of business and money and some stories that we just thought were neat. So let's put 90 seconds on the clock and go. A union strike is canceling school for three days in Los Angeles, impacting a few hundred thousand students. Custodians, bus drivers, and other support staff are seeking higher pay and a new contract with school officials, among other things. One of the most famous pieces of art, the Great Wave woodblock print by Katsushika Hokusai, sold for $2.8 million today in a Christie's auction. New York once again tops the list for a most expensive cities for business travel, an average of nearly $800 a day for costs ranging from hotels to meals and cab fares. First, there was Cocaine Bear, then Cocaine Cat, and now we got Cocaine Shark. I think I saw something in the water. I think it was a shark. Looks lower budget, but just as insane, the movie will debut on digital and DVD in July. A nature photographer recently snapped these surreal pictures of a bald eagle scooping up a slice of pepperoni pizza in Connecticut and then flying away with it. Enjoy. Puerto Rican artist Bad Bunny is being sued by an ex-girlfriend for $40 million for allegedly using her voice on two of his songs without her permission. A herd of elk in Utah taking up residence on a golf course, apparently rent-free. State authorities moved the herd by shutting down a local highway and using a chain to get them off the course. The price of the McDonald's Big Mac is getting supersized. That's according to CashNet USA and a survey of sandwich prices in all 50 states. It's most expensive in Hawaii, where the sandwich will run you $5.31. And we're done. All right, two things. We told you prices are out of control. And by the way, we showed that video of the eagle with the pepperoni pizza. Some of you are probably going to be like, that's not a bald eagle. It doesn't have a white head. If you're an eagle aficionado, and who isn't, you know that juvenile eagles don't really generate that, that beautiful white head of feathers until they're about three. Maybe that's why the juvenile went after the pepperoni pizza, the teenager. All right, on deck. Which bot is really the best bot? We're going full max headroom. Next. iPhone created a new computing platform, a new computing model. And this is absolutely the case with generative AI. All right, I was the CEO of NVIDIA speaking with Jim a short time ago about the push into AI there and the battle... The battle, anyway, of our future robot rulers heating up big time tonight. Google officially opening access to its AI chatbot called Bard. It is a direct competitor to both ChatGPT and Microsoft's new Bing search. Now, when Microsoft launched its AI-powered Bing chart chat back on February 7th, Alphabet shares took a tumble and have been lagging behind Microsoft since. Google took six weeks more to get its chatbot up and running, but 
Better late than never, Bard's launch is making investors happy and helped the stock rally close to 4% today. But the key question we're asking and all this stuff, which of these AI chatbots will reign supreme? With us now is New York Times tech reporter Nico Grand, who's been getting well acquainted with all of them. All right, Nico, if, if, I mean, if there was one that was just you know, going to Terminator style, just run over the rest of them, who do you think it's going to be? Well, currently, ChatGPT has the clearest advantage. It has been out the longest. These are models that tend to get better the more that people use them. And so having experimented with BARD, Google's new system, uh, today primarily in getting a demo of the system yesterday, it's clear that it's not as dexterous as ChatGPT is. It feels less conversational, less engaging. It also... Um, feels a bit less creative. When I asked to create a sonnet poem and when I asked for song lyrics from each of them, the chat GPT uh, system just created, I think, more complex rhymes. It felt more creative. And uh, chat GPT mm. also has fewer limitations right now in terms of what you can search. And I know from uh, reading the story of a guy named Nico Grant, you might have heard of him, that it has the Google search bar helpfully at the bottom, just in case you'd like to go to the Google from the Google. And that, of course, is how Google would make money in all of this, because, you know, Google generates about $160 billion in revenue a year from search advertising. And, you know, the idea that this could unsettle that market mm -hmm. and help to uh, disrupt the company is very scary. Uh, and so you can Google whatever this chatbot doesn't know. And Google also cautions Please do not, yep. you know, depend on this chatbot for very important things. That's helpful. Nico Grant, you were helpful. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. 17 years ago tonight, the first ever tweet was posted on, well, Twitter. On March 21st, 2006 at 3.50 p.m., Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey tweeted, just setting up my Twitter, TWTR. Of course, Twitter is widely used. By the way, Somebody bought that as an NFT, that first tweet as a digital token. Remember those for $2.9 million? He'd been trying to sell it, I think, unsuccessfully for $68,000. That's a 99.7% drop. That's not good. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow night on Last Call. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.